You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. Are you in off-season mode already, or do you... Are you working out to plan on coming back at some point and finishing a regular season? I don't even know, honestly. I have no idea. I'm just working out. I know i got to be. and Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'm working out for exactly. But Is it staying motivated? Is that part of the challenge? A hundred percent. I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, you know, because you're so bored and you're locked up at home, I mean, it's easy to go work out because you got nothing else to do. But, uh you know, if we were able to be going out and doing other things, it's hard. It'd be really hard to stay motivated uh, going in the gym every day and then trying to work out, not knowing when you could possibly play next. Uh, but because we have nothing to do and we're locked up at home, it's uh, pretty easy to get your workout in. That was Drew Doughty this week on a conference call with media. First of all, Jim, welcome in. How you doing? Doing great. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, still finding ways to stay busy, uh, finding it interesting that the days are very busy and full and, of course, not filled with the normal things we would be doing, but, you know, finding time to get your walks in and do your Spanish lessons and do some podcasts and do some other games and some virtual games and then some Zoom meetings with family and friends and So uh, I think making the best of it. I think what you're talking about is exactly what Drew Doughty was talking about. You can find ways to be busy, but in terms of the, the work aspect, and for Drew that is staying in shape, it is hard to stay motivated in this environment. And, and I think one of the interesting things Drew was talking about this week in that conference call with media uh, was that there, there there might be positives to this pause. He's spending a lot of time with his kids, with his family. Uh, they're back in London, Ontario. But being in the dark of when things are going to return, like I know that one of my uh, personal um, challenges was I, I want to you know refresh all my notes from this past year. I haven't started yet. And I know you've started Jim on your Spanish lessons and other things, but like I'm, I'm fine. I'm finding it hard to kind of hunker down and start on that project, not knowing kind of where we're at just yet. Do you feel the same way? Um, I think that I'm making the assumption that the Kings will not play another game this year, and. I think the most important thing that Drew said the other day to me, and there wasn't a long answer, it might have been one or two words, but he was asked, if the Kings were in a different position, meaning in the playoffs, would you be thinking differently right now? And I'm paraphrasing, or I'm just trying... Definitely is what he said. <laughs> so that's I don't doubt it. That's the big difference for teams that still would be considered playoff contenders or in the playoffs. And again, I assume they still have to figure out a way to determine who those playoff teams are. I'm the proponent of going back to the fewest amount of games that every team has played and go that way and take the standings at that point. Um you might have to go through some tiebreakers or whatever, but you find your way to get it done that way. Uh, so, but I, that's where I think Drew is. I, I think that if the Kings were in the playoffs, he would be saying, and that's the great thing about Drew. He tells you what's on his mind. But I'm glad that question was asked, and it was relatively, relatively late in his conversation where he was asked, you know, if the Kings were in a playoff spot, would, well, yeah. Definitely different, and that's where I am right now. Now, who knows? Can I also say, um, Drew uh, acknowledged that he might be interested in broadcasting. Um, Drew, we'd be interested in you becoming a broadcaster after your playing days because of that very thing that you know you're speaking of what's on your mind. He's very clear and and incisive. 
I, I enjoy that. And I know sometimes Drew gets himself into trouble. He's a one-man headline-making machine, and he certainly did that last week. But I think that's what we enjoy about good TV analysts, right, is that they're clear, they're to the point, and they say something that gets you thinking, right? No question. I, I Again, I think the way he sees the game is something that's since the first day I saw him at a Kings prospect camp, it was before the main camp started, and he was on the attack offensively. He ended up turning over the puck. He immediately took a U-turn and beelined right back without looking. Without I was watching him closely because second overall pick. And he beelined exactly for the right face-off circle in the king zone, took the right angle, and broke up the play. He knew exactly where the puck was going. He didn't have to think. He didn't have to look. He just did it. He just reacted. Uh, so that's the thing I think he could bring to broadcasting that very few people could. Now, the things that you were just touching on, and he doesn't have to change. He, he can go about it the way he continues. But, for instance, in the conversation he just had, Carlson or Yossi? Well, I go with Yossi because, and this is Drew's talking, I go with Yossi because he doesn't have a good team around him. Well, do you think next year that's going to be in the Nashville dressing room when they play the Kings? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, you know, the same thing, the Sedin's there. Oh, they don't play defense. So, that, okay, you know, that's all those things are brought up. You want to hear the freshness. You want to hear the honesty. But when you get into more of a controlled environment, maybe you change a little bit. But Drew, as I've said every single day since I've covered him, don't change. I love it. And honestly, it's just, it's refreshing. I, I, because, you get something new each time. Now, I I agree with the, the general sentiment. From the beginning of this, I've been of the mindset that instead of getting our hopes up and then being disappointed, let's be okay with our baseline of not returning until next season. If we can return sooner, great. I would love it. Everybody would love it. But to expect as a baseline this season to be complete, I think would be foolhardy. Wayne Gretzky said the other day he's optimistic about getting hockey played this summer. And you know what? I love it. I love feeling optimistic. That said, if and this is a big deal for the league, the league has acknowledged that several hundred million dollars is on the line if they can crown a champion and have a playoffs this year. There are so many sponsorship elements and media rights elements that are baked into this. So there is going to be a push, and, and that's why in some ways I... As on the one hand, I, I say I'm you know a little bit pessimistic. On the other, I look at the dollars and cents and say there's too much on the line to lose. I try to have a positive outlook even when things are difficult. And here's my positive outlook. If we finish the year on a seven-game winning streak and we have great draft picks coming up this summer and from now until the schedule started next season, we have six months for this crisis to ease and get life back to normal, fine by me. It stinks in the short term, and there's a lot of hardship out there. But, boy, you know, I, I, I maintain that we're in the position where we, uh, in the King's universe, have the luxury of time. And I'm actually, in some ways, enjoying not having that stress, um, even though I'd love to see playoff hockey, regardless of whether we're involved or not. I'd just like to add to that. And I don't think you you were missing anything there, but you said the league, you know, hundreds of well, the players, oh, yeah, also yeah. stand to lose a lot of money, and then there would be salary cap ramifications. I'm sure they would have to come up with some emergency uh, type of situation and, and redraft new rules, at least for the, the following year with a salary cap, because if it's fifty percent of hockey-generated revenue, obviously that hockey-generated revenue is going to take a huge hit, which means are we going to go from an $80 million salary cap to a $65 million in one year? I think there would have to be some grandfathering in some different areas just because of the unique nature. But uh, I think there is a motivating factor, first of all, from the league of just crowning a champion. Then there's the financial that affects both the ownership, and the players, and, and equally, I would say. You know, um, 
This is going to be an interesting discussion, and I will get to it in just a moment. But first, why don't we actually get this podcast started in a formal way? Jesse, ready for the music? And we welcome you in to the Mike Kruzelniski Podcast Loft in Playa Vista, California. Alex Faust here with you. Jim Fox, where are you broadcasting from today? I am broadcasting from the Mario Goose Goslin, <laughs> or what I would say in Canada, Goslin, studio here in Redondo Beach, California. So I love it. I love the it. Goose. The goose is loose. Uh, coming up. It is the 30th anniversary of Mike Kruzelniski's goal and the Kings' triumph over Calgary in 1990. Neutral sites have been kicked around, but it wouldn't be the first experiment with neutral site games. And much more on Drew Doughty and his comments this week, always newsmaking. But I want to begin with kind of a a personal question, because it came to mind uh, last week, it was... or two weeks ago. I don't even know what day it is anymore. But it was Passover. And one of the questions that, uh, you know, comes up around that time of year is, you know, kind of what are you thankful for, right? And somebody modified the question uh, this year um, in the friends and family Zoom online gathering. And the question was, what's one thing that you are okay with that might be different post-pandemic? Would it be self-improvement, a habitual change? I'm not talking about washing hands or being a bit more germaphobic, because I think we're all going to be that way. Uh, what's one thing, when this is all said and done, that's going to be different for you, maybe in a positive way? No question. It, it, the answer becomes or comes to me immediately, I'm sure that it will not be different than many other people. But to me, it is the appreciation for the people that are not, that are on the front lines. And and I think the medical industry to a certain extent gets our respect already. I don't know if they get our appreciation. And I think there's a difference there, but also then, you know, I'm going to the delivery driver the grocery store clerk, the hardware store clerk, all of those types of people, I th- I honestly think there will be a new respect and appreciation for those people. He, you know, he or she is just not the, the postman or post lady who's dropping off the mail or the FedEx or the UPS or the Amazon driver. It's not just the guy doing his rounds and getting through his day. Especially when it comes, you know, I don't know if you've had groceries delivered. We have now. That's, you know, the things that you you take for granted every day because the, in our society here, we have an abundance of food and water and drink and other societies don't. But we need those people to get it to us. And, and I think, you know what? That's almost a daily thought right now. I know it will go away a little bit, but I don't think I'll ever lose that new appreciation. Yeah. I think the appreciation or the thing that uh, habitually I'm, I'm looking to change is I'm looking to volunteer more. Um, I gave blood at Children's Hospital LA a couple of weeks ago, and it was so easy. Um, you know, the the fundraising effort, I'm sure many Kings fans have seen uh, through like my old game notes, that was easy. I mean, just a little bit of time, and I'm going through, and I'm, I'm making the envelopes uh, yesterday, actually, and just, you know what? Yeah, it's taken a couple hours to do, but I know so many people are going to get joy out of this, and it raised a lot of money. I mean, all told, um, I think we came close to about $3,000, including a donation that I kicked in. Um, it was uh, it was simple. It, it was easy. Um you know, I, I was reading in uh, Elliot Friedman's 31 Thoughts this week, Michael Delzato has uh, taken online courses in global financial markets. He's learning to speak Italian. You're learning to speak Spanish, Jim. I was surprised to see how much, I think, a lot of players, because they have so much downtime during the season, some of them read books, some of them watch movies. I think there are going to be a lot of players who appreciate the time they spend with their family, 
a lot of players who get to finish their college degrees, there's going to be a lot of self-improvement. I, I get the sense, just kind of globally speaking, from all this time by ourselves, that we're going to take time to self-improve a little bit more than we otherwise would have. I think there's also been a little bit more, although I think in our industry, the sport industry, it's come to the forefront more and more of late. But mental health, I, I think a lot more people are thinking about that now. I, I think there will be an adjustment when we get out of this. What about the kids that their parents go back to work every day? Mm. When they've had their parents there every day of 24 hours for two months, there's going to be an adjustment there. Of course, you know, if, if we can get back, hopefully in the fall, back to where kids are going to school again, I think that helps, you know, create independence. You get away from your parents, you, you're, you're going to school. But the, there will, but now I think there is, again, a, a, just a little bit of a, a stronger attention to, to the mental health issues and, and how people mm -hmm. are actually helping each other. And, and you know what I think I'm finding right now is the, the best way people are helping each other is by empathizing. And just understanding yeah. that, you know what? You have a good day, you have a bad day. Just checking in with people. Yeah, that's and just, you know, I think I think that's coming that's coming again to the forefront just a little bit more. It's I think in our in our industry it's been talked about way more in the last two years than I've you know, the previous forty. But I think just generally as a society, I think that'll be a, you know, one of those positives that uh people will take and carry forward. Honestly, what I'm hoping, and I'm going to go on a mini rant here, um, I am hoping that in our industry, the broadcasting industry, um, more companies are able to pay it forward. There have already been incredible examples um, you know, of, of companies that have paid their employees through canceled events through the month of April. And I, that ends at a certain point. You can only do so much for so long. Um, NBC Sports, I know their regionals, like all those folks were paid until the end of the regular season. Um, uh, you know, ESPN was paying their employees. Fox Sports is paying their employees. I got to say, and I'm, I'm hoping this message reaches the folks in Baltimore at Sinclair, who owns Fox Sports West, along with the 22 other Fox Sports branded regional networks. They haven't paid anybody that's a freelancer since the NBA and NHL seasons were paused. And I get that there are financial implications, and it's hard to do that when you're not bringing in as much revenue, but your cable bill is still being paid, and money is still being paid to these regional sports networks. And uh, at the outset of this, uh, it didn't seem like there was as much of an effort to pay these folks when industry-wide, it was a standard practice to pay what was being called cancel pay. Um you know, from engineers to technicians to graphics uh, people, audio, um, your technical directors, your associate directors, your replay operators, your uh, your utilities, your stagehands. There are so many people who haven't had a single paycheck since March 11th. You know, we've heard of, um, you know, companies that have uh, had pay cuts. Ours is one of them. Um but I'm hoping that there's a little bit more attention paid to that um, because there's so much that's gone on. And there is those people that you just mentioned, much like uh, we were just talking about renewed appreciation. I think if there's anything I've learned over the years is we can't do our job without them. Oh, we just can't. And, you know, even it's it's as simple as Donna and Moscow, our, our stage manager, just someone in, in the booth that is support, that is irreplaceable. And then you went through the list of so many people and that and that's the one thing when I when I go to talk to classes sometimes. Or, and usually, you know, when I talk to classes, it's uh, it's about on air right in front of the camera. But I always make sure to, to you know. If you if you can't if you don't get the on air you know in front of the think about how many different things are happening behind behind the scenes to make it happen and, and it it you know what that's the best thing to me about professional sports or live sports is that you know what for the most part at the end of the night we get through it without without many technical niche you know and. 
there's a lot of pieces, and a lot of pieces that can go wrong. And so many times the people you're talking about are the people that make it right. Yep. And this is where I, I think for fans wanting hockey back, <laughs> like it's not just a throw, you know, uh, uh, six skaters uh, or, or five skaters and a goalie out there and, uh, you know, have just two teams compete. If you're going to have broadcasting be part of it, there are hundreds of people that are going to be involved from from that side. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that as a as a country and, you know, companies continue to take care of uh, their employees. AEG has been tremendous in, in taking care of of their employees, uh, us included, over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, wa- I want to go back to um, uh, last week's comments from Drew Doughty, uh, and uh, because there was so much in that uh, little teleconference that he did. One thing that stuck out to me, and, and we did this uh, the fun thing last week with Luke Robitaille uh, with this uh, virtual simulated game, some legends involved that aired on Fox Sports West. Back in the day, you showed up to training camp to get in shape. Luke Robitaille said as much the other day, and I'm, I can only think about what, what Drew was talking about with staying in shape and staying with the home gym. You rented an elliptical, Jimmy, to try to stay in shape. Like I, This is going to be the most fascinating training camp in years, I would imagine, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting. To me, it's not the fitness, it's the skating. And I think that's the biggest issue. It may be specific, but that's, I know that if you're, I know that 99.9% of the players that are out there right now are maintaining a high quality world-class fitness program right now. They're doing their, you know, body weight, muscle building, toning. They're doing some cardio. They're fine, whether it's just running outdoors, which maybe they haven't done in a while and they've done ellipticals or bikes. Or, they're doing that. The one thing they're not doing is skating. And I think that will be the biggest adjustment. And that's why there will have to be a buffer zone if they do come back. And we've talked about it. A buffer zone, which is a little bit longer than normal, where they can just get the skating legs back. Yeah. This was um, the other kind of hockey-related issue that came up. Um, and I'm, I want to play this clip so that you get a sense uh, at home for kind of where Drew's head is at, because it's something we've talked about on this podcast before. It's how hockey has changed over the last couple of years and how it may be really changed going into the postseason if it happens this year. You know, back in the day, maybe a guy that wasn't so fast but could sink the game, um, you know, they were on everyone's team because they're making the, the good plays. And when you're a smart player with the puck, you're usually a smart player without the puck. But now, if you have a really smart player who can't skate, they're going to go take the guy who can't think the game at all but can skate 100 miles an hour. So I, I really wish the game would go back to the way it was. I, As a hockey player growing up my whole life playing hockey, um, I think that's the type of game I respect more than this run-and-gun hope game. And This is... Um... Something that's stood out to me, because we've seen a lot of these vintage games being re-aired on NHL Network and Fox Sports West Prime Ticket. Drew was talking about how the league has changed, even in the last 10 years. Slashing, hooking's been clamped down on, it's more wide open, headshots are down. He raised the point that the game isn't the same. And you've said to me that the game is almost too fast now. I wonder, it, it might be even more wide open after this whole thing. And and I could see where Drew is coming from in this point. To me, it's not as much the wide open nature as it is just how fast things are happening. And let's face it, I think in every sport, you're striving for that. You're always striving. If you're a quarterback, get that ball to the receiver quicker. If you're the running back, hit that hole quicker. In hockey, move the puck quicker. In baseball, you've got to throw the ball faster. You've got to get from first to third quicker. You can change the game and the dynamics of a game doing that. Basketball, how fast can you push the ball up the court? How fast can you take a ball, receive it, square up and shoot it? All those things are skills, and I would never, ever want to take away from that. But with the combination of athletes getting better and rules 
opening things up. That combination, if you take both of those things and separate them, I don't think there's an issue. But when you bring them together like they have been brought together, then it just, there is a certain helter-skelter nature of the game. And, and I don't, this is, this is going to sound awful. I can't, hear my, I can't believe myself saying it, but it, skilled players should have a separation. The reason they're skilled and the reason they're at the top of their, their sport is because they've been given something by God or Mother Nature or just by the hard work they put in and how they've addressed certain things in their game and they've been able to hone it and make it. But now you're getting to that point where fewer and fewer, a smaller percentage of the players can do that. And it just, there's a, I know Brian Burke, who, who I certainly respect because he comes from a different era than I do, but I just love his communication skills. I just love, he's talked about it too. You get to a point where it's a little bit too fast. And then when things are happening so fast, is the art taken away? So to that extent, where would be a, a, a more appropriate medium? Because I, I think going back and watching some of these vintage games and I'm seeing guys just getting murdered, getting their hands chopped off, getting their, their skates slashed. Um, like it's, it's ridiculous how the game used to be played. I mean, it was, it was the opposite problem, right? Is that if you tried to score, if you tried to, to score goals, you were going to get punished physically beyond what the rules were intended to do. And I mean, you played in this era where it was far more violent. Like, were you, at any point kind of saying to yourself, what are we doing here? Or was it just, you're just in the mode of, this is how it is. Yeah, I think that those thoughts for me came before I got to the NHL, when you're in junior and lower levels, when it does get out of hand even more. Because players are trying to prove themselves that they can make it to the NHL. Once you get to the NHL, I think you've already established some type of, okay, you've hit that milestone. You're at the top. You're in the biggest, the best league in the world. So you don't have to prove it anymore. But of course, you know, there were still bench clearing brawls and still fun. I think the biggest difference, Alex, and it's, it's this. It's the strength and power of given to the Players Association. Not given, earned by the Players Association. All of a sudden, players started to talk about how can we protect ourselves? How can we make this game safer? The players didn't have a say before. The slashes onto the hands you're talking about. That used to be normal. There used to be guys that would target. There's no question. That defensemen would use a heavier stick on purpose. And when they get into a corner, before they made body contact, they would reach out, bang, tap you on the wrist. See, that's not hockey, though, because you're not, if you're not in good enough position to make a, a, a proper hit on somebody and all you can do is just slash them on the hands. I, I was watching a clip with Mario Lemieux coming out of a corner and must have been slashed out five, six times before making this brilliant pass. I don't know how he was able to do that with all the, you know, the, the <laughs> it's from that stick that he was taking, but I, I just look at it like that's not hockey. And I, I understand Drew's point of view, and I, I understand your point of view. I would take the helter just as a younger viewer. I'll take the helter skelter, um, you know, a little bit out of control version of the game because it feels like you're playing the sport rather than you know. I, violently preventing somebody from doing their job in that way. And maybe there is a happy medium in there, but I, I just, I love having a wide open game rather than one that's clamped down on. Yeah. And again, I, I understand that again, I'm trying to get away from wide open being equated with fast. I think there's a difference. And I think, like I said, because the rules have changed at the same time that the emphasis on skill has changed. I mean, again, you're seeing the, the evolution. And I've mentioned it before. Dean Lombardi was a pioneer in player development. Now players break down 
a move out of the corner, they break that down into five pieces. Alex, I know, man, I used to watch. I don't see him anymore. The baseball skills guy. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you go down, you bend your knees, okay, you receive the ball, you turn your shoulders. Tom Imansky. There you go. Tom <laughs> Imansky. He would do that's what they're doing now in hockey. They're breaking down the game. So take taking the puck in the corner and taking it to the front of the net because you'll have a guard guy guard. There are now five breaks in that. Okay. Body position first. Okay. Upper body, lower body, lean. Where's the puck? Is it shielded? Once you get it open. They break that down on attack. They actually work on moves, which is, this is all great. I'm not, but it, that's how the game has evolved. I used to attack. I didn't plan the move. I didn't practice the move. Now they break it down. Okay, I'm going to go to my forehand. They do it 10 times in a row. They're going to go to my back. It's all great. But now all this is coming together along with out of the last long lockout where they came up with the new rules. All great. The, the 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 scoring chances are up. It's it there's there's just and by no means is there complaining going on here by me. I'm not losing any sleep over this. It's just like you say, when Drew brought it up, I mentioned it to you before, I think even on the air, where it gets a little bit too fast. Brian Burks talked about, you know, finding ways and usually when you're talking about those things, you're talking about player safety. I think and Drew touched I think there is I think it's got to the point now where we're past that. There was that period of getting used to things, referees getting used to players, players getting referees, having rules and then having rules that are actually enforceable as opposed to, okay, you get a stick up parallel now, right? You don't have to tug on the guy. You're still going to the box for hooking because you can't expect the referee to enforce something in real time that happens. So you just have to look at the visual, make the call. That's the best way to be consistent. Again, when you break it down and you slow it down, you'll say, oh, he didn't hook him. He didn't tug him. No, but he got a stick up. It was parallel. That's it. Boom. And so, but the, the player safety, I think, has come a long way. And I think, again, it has a lot to do with the players learning and going through those certain standards where you have to find a new standard, get used to the new standard, enforce the new standard, and then both the refs and the players on the same page. One of the topics you just touched on was the last long lockout. And that's almost what this layoff feels like, like a lockout. We are being locked out of our daily lives. Uh, we can't go out to dinner. We, we can't, um, you know, go uh, to shop for clothes. Uh, players must feel that way as well. And, and I'll play this one last clip from, from Drew Doughty this past week of um, you know, the Players Association is still staying active. They're they're staying in touch with one another, and they're voting on things. I'll ask a question on the other side. We have to make some decisions when it comes to, to NHLPA stuff on uh, votes and, and things like that. So I keep in touch with uh, our head rep and Matt Wayne, obviously, and then uh, a lot of the veterans, we keep talking about it. And I also talk to a lot of guys on other teams, too, just seeing what their teams are thinking and, seeing what they're hearing. So, yeah, I talked to, I mean, we got nothing but time. So lots of time to talk to people right now. Lots of time. Well, we can all empathize with that. But the question that comes to mind for me, I wonder if this crisis means we are going to see long-lasting labor peace between the NHL and the NHLPA. It, it seems like in this scenario, there is too much for either side to lose They'll find a way, even if somebody's got to take a little sacrifice. They'll find a way. That's my opinion, at least. I think that both sides have seen it up close and personal how fragile things can be. And that brings you back home very, very quick. It was interesting. I used to be the player rep for the Kings. And this is before email. This is before cell phones. So I would go and have a meeting, then I'd call the meeting, I'd bring all the information back to the Kings players, we'd sit around, we'd talk for five, five, 10, 15, 20, whatever it was, Not, nothing long, but, you know, two weeks later, we'd vote on something, players would get it back. Why, why, why did it go? They wouldn't, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have, they didn't have the information. They listened to it, but they didn't absorb it. They didn't take it in. 
Now, like Drew said, he talks to other players. They have emails. You go back and forth. You get documents sent to you that you can actually have in writing and read it. Do that. And, and, and in all of this, it just brings up something I read the other day from Adam Oates. The one thing he said, and we were just talking about development. I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but he said, man, he cannot believe, because he's one of the guys that helps, right? He's a skilled guy. He says, I can't believe players working together in the offseason from different teams. He said, when I played, and he was talking about himself, he said, I wouldn't talk to Chris Chelios in the summer. Chris Chelios tried to take my head off a couple times during the regular season. I'm not going to go up, hey, Chris, nice try. Nice, nice slasher. No. And uh, that's, again, just another evolution. And that's, it's all great. It's, it's just how we move from one generation to the next and things change. I think one interesting aspect of this as well, when there is a lockout, when there have been lockouts in the NHL, a lot of stuff gets done. A lot of back and forth takes place. A lot of negotiations. And I know at some point in 0405, it stopped. Um, but when we're playing hockey, we don't get to think about the big picture issues. Well, now you are basically in a lockout mode where you get to think about the big picture issues, the stuff that matters, the stuff that you would want to vote on. And I think players, the PA, and the NHL, they're all taking advantage of the opportunity. Everything I've heard about the commissioner's office they're going nonstop. They're working seven days a week, not only coming up with scenarios, but also things that they can talk to the PA about to see what they can do to work through this thing. And I get the sense that everybody wants to be on the same page. And I know one of those ideas that's been kicked around from the very beginning of this is neutral site games, um, because I think there's a thirst for TV sports content. Did you watch The Last Dance over the weekend, the Michael Jordan documentary? I uh, believe I did. Uh, I watched episode two. Oh, you got to watch episode. You got to watch from the beginning. What? Do all do. four I hours that next one. week. Yeah, I missed that one. And then I went, I caught up with it. There's more coming, right? Is oh, it yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's okay. like a five week thing. Uh, you have plenty right. of time to catch up. Um, but it, th- I think the whole buildup around this is that there's a thirst for new sports content. I mean, we're trying to work on it, right? You know, we're, we're beyond airing classic games, the the, uh, the Legends video game concept that we had and some other stuff that's being worked on. Um, so that's why this whole neutral site, you know, just allowing TV to broadcast the games thing is so interesting. And it goes back even to the mid-90s. The NHL has done neutral sites before, Um they used to play 84 games uh, in the early 90s as part of this experiment. Um, and the Kings participated in this. They played the Blackhawks in Milwaukee, the Canadiens in Phoenix, Arizona. They would later have a team. Uh, they played the Flames in Phoenix, Arizona, and they played the Oilers in Sacramento. And there's a thought. The governor of New Hampshire has talked about potentially hosting games at the uh, the arena in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. This is not a new concept, but I'm curious, as you go back to the, the early 90s and you were calling some of these games and these neutral sites, what, what was unique and different about those when the season had 84 games? Uh, I think, again, I think that the thing came to the forefront was the partnership aspect. Uh, let's go back to the origination. We were there, we being King's people, because you put Gretzky together with Los Angeles, huge market that wasn't then considered a big hockey market. Now you have a different, completely different landscape. And Wayne has been discussed many times, probably was the only player that could have accomplished this because of his crossover, the way he crossed over to the... uh, Pop culture. It's pop culture. I was watching Swingers for the first time the other night, by the way, Jimmy. Uh, like Speaking of movies, we haven't talked about movies that I haven't watched in a while. And they had NHL 94, the video game, in there. And they had one of the, one of the characters wearing a Wayne Gretzky jersey. <laughs> it was pop culture. That's exact. And that's we were able to make that crossover. So then uh, the league says, okay, we've got that. Yeah, that. What I remember, in all honesty, was going into those, mostly into those towns. There were a few that... You would have a viable, no question, this is a chance for an NHL franchise. And then there were some that 
they were just on the outside. You knew in the back of your mind, there's no way an NHL team would ever be there. But uh, when we went into most of the towns, it seemed to be kind of a one and done. You're in there 24 hours before the game. Yeah, the big hype, but a couple of stories in the local papers. We play the game and Gretzky, but then you go leave and then it would kind of go away. But uh, I think it's a step that the NHL had to take. They had to take it. They wanted to expand. They had to find ways. Uh, and uh, they did so. But uh, we were there. You know, you, you when Wayne came, I remember at the beginning of season sitting down with at least minimal of two L.A. Times writers to basically go over the rules of hockey. Now, this is not Helene Elliott, who's been there for, forever and is a Hall of Fame writer. But these are the, the beat persons that were put on when Helene was not on the beat. And I had no problem doing it. But that's where our sport was. Wayne comes. Everyone's attracted to it. Time says we've got to put a beat reporter on it. They put someone who's never seen a hockey game before. I've got to sit down with them and go over some basics. Had no problem doing it, loved it, but that's the growth stages that you have to go through. There were uh, 13 markets that the uh, the NHL went into for these. Um, five of the 13 eventually received franchises. Dallas, Atlanta, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Phoenix, and Miami. Now, granted, Atlanta had the Flames back in the 70s. You know, Minneapolis had the North Stars, so these were kind of... You know, old is new again markets, but Miami, Phoenix, Dallas all got teams out of it. Um, now, would I expect that Manchester, New Hampshire is going to get a top flight major league team out of it again? Remember, they were the Kings affiliate for a long, long time. The Manchester Monarchs from 2001 to, I want to say, 15, they were the AHL affiliate. Um, won the Calder Cup. Uh, it's not a situation where they're trying to grow the sport. Um, but it is a historic connection to a city that has a hockey history and it is a market that is probably a little bit more accessible than the other rumored one in North Dakota or even Regina, Saskatchewan, let's be honest. Um, and it seems like there's buy-in to have everybody under one roof, at least for the playoffs. I just don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the interim. It'll be fascinating. It's going to be, it would be a fascinating experiment. Um, as, as we talked about at the beginning, I think we're both kind of on the pessimistic side of this, but um, as, as far oh, no as way. neutral site, I, no I'd be fascinated. Way. What? We're playing. There's going to be playoff games played. You think so? I do. But back to what you were just, what came to my mind, Alex, was this, is how the little things are so important. And the NHL had to go through these things. The players have to go through these things. The numbers on the helmets, mm. placement of that. When you go into locker rooms now, right? You have the name tags at every spot. You know why? Because a lot of the media in there don't know who the players are. But, but now they do. Now they yeah. do. And, and that's, yeah. you know, we're playing in cities around the country that really, like I said, to me, it was kind of like a, you mentioned 13 and only five, you know, you're in for 24 hours, attention on you for 24 hours, you're gone, they forget about you. But all these little things, they're little, but to me, they're, they're hugely important. Now we have 30 coming to 31 teams. And I follow the game as closely as anyone. You know what? When I go to the East Coast sometimes, I don't know this guy. I don't know him facially. I've seen him on t It's It's great uh, what they think about how they, the angles, uh, you know, cameras for, for TV games, numbers. You, you've gone through it, you know, especially as a play-by-play -play guy. I know there's more thought put into that now than ever before. All those little things that help us identify the players. Uh, it was it. I was at a Fox seminar one time when, when Mark Cuban came in and spoke, and he was a great speaker. And the one thing he said, this is only two years ago, two years ago. He said, the biggest thing we have to do in pro sports is make sure our fans know what time the game is. And I'm, I'm going, what? This is a fundamental, simple. Well, 
you, you have to make sure you, that your people know what time, what date, what channel, what time, what date, yeah. what channel, what time, what date, what channel, what time. You take it for granted. Yep. People, you know what, they yeah. got, they're working for eight hours, they're coming home, they got kids. They got, you're taking it for granted. I, I just thought that was interesting from a guy who sits in his position as the president, owner, uh, doing so many other things, but simplify it to the point of date, time, and channel. Make sure they know. It's been a good show to binge on CNBC, Shark Tank, all the rears. They're all still good. They're all smart. Uh, I I want to talk a little bit about this neutral site thing. No fans, but available for TV. I asked you this question last night. I want to know if you had a chance to think about what is one enhancement you'd like to see that we might not have had access to or permission for in a normal circumstance if we had a neutral site, no fans, maybe an intimate arena setting, but TV would be the the only outlet that we could watch hockey. Yeah, I'm not going to jump out on a limb here. I think it's pretty obvious to me. It would be camera locations. You could put cameras now where people would be sitting and you could get a complete, I think a completely different aspect, an angle. You know, there's always that in hockey, there seems to be that, that tight and then the, the game angle. And then tight. I think you can find a lot of different ways now. And then, you know what? Maybe I'm downplaying it because now we have the ankle cam, right? We have the camera mm-hmm. down in the low, low baseboard around the ice. So we, we have more and more, but uh, I'm just thinking that there might be a, a camera that would be a fixed location. Yeah. Wouldn't be able to do. And, and it might give, it would, it would just bridge that gap between the camera view and that tight view it would be somewhere in between. And I think it would help. How about a spider cam or, or those cable cams like they have for college pro football? I, I would be curious to see because those things would block a lot of fans' sight lines in an arena, but if you had access to something that could move back and forth with the play and kind of follow the play in real time, that would be pretty cool. It would be, it would be interesting. I know in the past they've done it with the, the camera that used to hang underneath the scoreboard, Jumbotron, right in the middle of the ice, and yeah, it would follow yeah. a yeah. robo, it would go back and forth. But, yeah, you can't get into the back pocket, and I think that's what that type of camera would do for you. Yeah, and they're right. It would be normally blocking sight lines and we wouldn't have to worry about yep. that. It, it's a fast game and the transition makes that a little bit more difficult, but why not try it? You're right. Yeah. I'll try it. You know, in football, you can get right into the back of the huddle, right? And then you can get right behind the quarterback because you're not, you're going one way. And yes, there might be transition with a fumble or an interception, but basically 90% of the time, the ball is going to go from one spot and you know where it's going. In hockey, that type of camera, man, I think the technology would have to, because the zipping back and oh, yeah. forth that it would have. Oh, yeah. uh, we had it in the outdoor game in Colorado Springs. Um, but again, now you have a football stadium type of thing where you have more of a panoramic as opposed to something a little bit tighter. Yeah, I think that'd be f- You know what would be interesting for me? And I, I, I know the reason why we don't have it already. It's the unfettered, uncensored live audio from the benches. And I know why we don't have it, because in our sport, Jimmy, I don't know if you knew this, but we tend to swear a lot, um, specifically the F word, quite a lot in the sport of hockey. And um, I don't think uh, advertisers in a family-friendly environment take too kindly to that. But I'm thinking, you know what? This is the time. When else are you going to have the opportunity to get, without any background noise, the uncensored, unfettered live audio. I know, again, speaking to The Last Dance, the Jordan documentary, I enjoyed hearing that. I enjoy when we get those videos of the refs completely uncensored and that communication that goes back and forth. Um, I'd even go so far as to say, you know, have a, have a referee channel, you know? <laughs> like, I, I want to hear what the sport is really like because, yeah, okay, it's technically profanity, but I think there's a charm to it in a certain way. Uh, when you hear these guys talk yes. on the ice, it's actually kind of fun. You're going to have some FCC issues uh, <laughs> that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, and things of that sort. There's another thing that hockey does more than any sport. Spit. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Swear and spit. Uh, That's all they do. Yeah, if this were 1910, we, we'd be banned all over again. Um, one, one last thing I want to get to. Um before we take some listener questions, this year is the 30th anniversary 
of the Kings' triumph over Calgary, the defending Stanley Cup champions in 1990. And as much as the Kings were, you know, a team on the rise, they had Wayne Gretzky and whatnot, they were still underdogs in that series to a large degree. And, uh, you know, Mike Krujelniski with that crazy goal at the at the net front, uh, the indelible memory from that series. But w- what are some of your memories from that series now that we're uh, 30 years on? Uh, the first thing, and it comes to mind, and it's it happened a couple of years previous, but when you, and it's, I'm not overdoing this. Uh, I don't believe. Uh, we know about Wayne as a player and we know his skill and all of that and production. The intangible factor was this. When Wayne Gretzky was on your team, you believed you had a chance to win the whole shooting match. Now, it didn't happen here with the Kings and Wayne. They went, of course, to the finals in 93 a couple of years later. But it was there. And you could feel it. There was a true feeling that when he's on a team, they have a chance to win. And, uh, you know, the high-scoring nature of those games, uh, playoffs, and the, the grudges that were involved – I, I, you know, and, and it does take a backseat in the playoffs more so because you can't afford to, you know. I, I remember just when you just not necessarily the series, but like a Rob Blake fighting Joel Otto. Like these are these are probably more regular season, but just you know what? I truly believe, at least, I think there was as much of a rivalry between the Kings and Calgary than the Kings and the Oilers. Calgary had more of an edge to their teams, more of a physicality. Uh, not taking anything away from, you know, rest in peace, Dave Semenko from the Oilers and Marty McSorley. And, you know, you had all that, but Calgary was huge. And they were tough and they were rough. And that was, that always had a side line to any of the games against the Calgary Flames. And uh, But yeah, you just, you get to a point where, and that, that was where the Kings were growing, right? They, they were trying every year to improve their roster, and they get to a point where, okay, now you can play with these types of teams. Uh, I believe there was a disputed non-goal for Brian McClellan, I think, was going to be credited with a goal that they couldn't find a replay that found it over. I don't know if replay was involved back then, but then it was a dispute. It's in, it's not in. Uh, didn't matter, though. Just Mike Vernon's arm was not long enough. It wasn't long enough. He's got to grow. <laughs> Could not reach back and get that puck. Uh, I believe it was Doug Gilmore who had the disputed uh, non-goal call. I'm just going back and looking through the the LA Times clips from from the series. But I, either way, it was uh, that's another series that I'd love to go back and kind of go down the YouTube rabbit hole and and start watching again. So I might have to do it. Um, all right, let's let's take some listener questions and then we'll uh, we'll we'll let everybody get on with their day. Uh, one thing that I know has been a topic for us has been the increase of scoring in the NHL. And this is an interesting question. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the premise, but Icing on the Crown asks, how would you increase scoring, but only by changing the net? Taller, wider, maybe you know the, the way they used to be designed with those two curves in the back, would you make the net more shallow? If you could only change the net to increase scoring... Again, the premise of the question, uh, how would you do it, if at all? If at all is the question. Uh, I'm going to bail on this one and say do not touch the net at all. And that goes against what he's – I just – you can make it shallower. Uh, You know, people felt that that would give the operator behind the net a little bit more room to to work. Uh, bounces off the backboards would have less of a chance of hitting the back of the net, maybe carry him to the front. The passer from behind the net, if he had less or more, you know, less net to f- worry about behind the goal line, then he could make a lofted angle saucer pass maybe. So, uh, yeah, I, I think at that point, I you lost me. And, and you know what, Nick Nixon, uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster with the Kings on radio, he, he's uh, he's – Back in the day when, you know, the dead puck era, he was he was a proponent of make the net bigger. Let's make them bigger. Let's go. Uh, 
you know, and I was always, I got to the point where, you know what, you started to consider it, but I'm back to the point now where, and part of what that question involves is the goaltender's ability to take up so much room. I understand that the ratio, the size, the open net behind a goaltender now compared to what it used to be, it's almost gone away. But uh, I think we've just got to find ways and to, to tweak the rules as they keep doing and where face-offs are taking place and things of that sort and help it that way. I'd still think uh, shrinking pads for goalies would do more than uh, changing the net. Uh, I think it already they, has, yeah, Alec. Yeah, they, and they've done a good job with that. I think I see pucks that we see them now that are sneaking through goaltenders. They're you know under the arm, seven hole, eight hole. They're, they're getting in there. And that's a little bit different than the past. And, and then I think, you know, goaltenders just they start to worry a little bit more because they they may know they have to maybe move a little bit more to cover that spot, as opposed to just being a blocker of the puck and just letting it hit you. Here's an interesting one, and again, the premise of the question, you know, we're we're kind of spitballing here because we we don't have actual hockey, but an interesting premise to this question from Josh Mendoza: If you could have the Kings swap divisions for one season. Which division would you put them in, and who would be the team going the other way? That is very easy for me. They would be in the Hawaii division. <laughs> I love it. Can we have like a why? Do, why are we doing this in Hawaii? Why have, hasn't anyone thought about playing this playoffs in Hawaii? Yeah, I'm I'm all for that. I mean, the. Time zone change, all of that would help out everyone. We can play. It'd be much better for everyone. But no, yeah, I would definitely base the Kings division out of uh, Kauai. <laughs> uh, I would still, as much as I would love that, um, uh, and it would involve some uh, island hopping, I guess. Uh, the the Metropolitan Division has always earned a bit of jealousy from around the NHL for how uh, simple the travel is there. Every time we go on those East Coast road trips and we take off from an airport and we land in 45 minutes at the next destination, we're like, these people are so spoiled in this division. <laughs> it's just, it's so different out there. Like We, we think of going on a road trip and, and it's a trip there. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. So I would say, I don't know the team going the other way. Uh, I would hope, I'd hoped when they did the realignment for Seattle that Seattle, Colorado moving over and then Edmonton, Calgary moving the other way. Uh, that's into the, that's what I'd hoped had been done, but there are some very serious Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Canadian team issues that they want to keep together there. In, in the Kings current. Honestly, it, it's actually, I mean, we have Vegas in the division, we have Anaheim in the division, Arizona's moving to the central, but we have San Jose. So you've got, you know, three, four teams within a one hour flight. And that makes a huge, huge difference. And having Seattle and Va Vancouver's kind of on an island. When you go there, regardless of whether you're traveling from Calgary, Edmonton, or from San Jose, we had a back to back this season, San Jose to Vancouver. That was not fun. But having Seattle, I think, is going to make a huge difference to be able to do most more than likely back-to-backs between Seattle and Vancouver, but even having a day in between just um, – I, I will I, – I agree with you, Jim. I, I don't necessarily love that Arizona is moving instead of something else, but I understand why. I'll just – I don't know. I'll just take maybe my second biggest pet peeve other than people complaining about the schedule – is anyone that complains about travel. <laughs> I came into the NHL in 1980. All the teams were traveling commercially. It was an even balanced schedule. So two at home and two away against every other team in the National Hockey League. And if you want to complain about travel <laughs> and you're the loss, our closest team that year was Colorado. That was the closest. The Rockies, right? Yeah. And then you had Vancouver. So that was it, basically. So now, Anaheim, Arizona. That makes it a lot easier. San Jose, 
And then, you know, with, with the actual, again, the East and West conferences, you know, you're bringing in some Dallas teams and some other teams that make, just, just make it a little bit easier. But uh, that's, that's my second pet peeve. Don't ever, I don't want to hear anyone complaining about travel now. No, we're, we're taken care of quite well. I'll, I'll leave it with this one uh, from Dieter Rule. Dieter says, hi guys, grew up watching hockey in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when all the home teams wore white or yellow. Any chance the Kings can wear white at home more often next year? Felt great seeing Colorado and New Jersey wearing road colors and Kings in white. Miss you guys. Stay safe. We wish the same to you, Dieter. And I know this would be baseball season and you'd be out at Dodger Stadium uh, for every home game. And we miss uh, we miss having you at Staples. We miss hearing you at Dodger Stadium. Um I, Jim, I, I think more teams in the league are, is kind of going in a direction where not that it doesn't matter as much anymore, but because there are so many alternate jerseys and concepts and one-offs, it's kind of pick and choose. And so long as you can get the other team to agree, if it's a, you know, a home road situation, if they agree to bring their other jersey set, I, I mean, it seems like teams can pick and choose more often than they used to, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I, I don't, again, I, we've talked about this before. I, I'm not, I don't lose any sleep over it. I grew up when I first started watching hockey when it was the way it is now with the colors being worn at home. But I think you are exactly right. I think that there will be, it's going to, all you have to do is come into an agreement with the other team. Uh, yes, the equipment managers will have to take an extra trunk of jerseys along the road, and but that will become normal and natural. Uh, so, for instance, in your own division, if you play two and two, maybe you can just do the whole. You know, one is your whites, one is your colors at home. You know, but then you have your thirds. Yeah, it's you know what I I I don't. It's, it's tough to. I don't know if I've ever watched the game since I was 12 years old. I don't know if I've ever watched the game as a fan. And when I was 12, I was just ending my peewee league and I was a pretty good player in my area. And I was, you know, the best in my area. And I started only thinking as a player. Then I played, then I'm a broadcaster. It's, I don't, I can't remember the last time I've sat down and watched a game as a fan. And maybe that's why I don't put as much importance on what colors are being worn by which team. That's fair. And I I think even from my standpoint, um, I enjoy going into the stands every now and again, if if you have the chance. I mean, we're working every game, so it's unless national TV takes it. And uh, and they did this year, actually, the game – against Dallas in January where I wasn't working it. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go sit in the stands. It doesn't really bother me to just you know sit back and watch the game from the stands and, uh, and cheer a little bit. It's, it's nice. Um, that's, that's why I still, I know you poke fun at it, but I, I stay in touch with my alma mater with, with Northeastern and college hockey a little bit, because on the rare chance that I can go to a game, I can be a fan and let loose a little bit. And, uh, boy, you should hear the profanities coming out of my mouth when I sit and watch a hockey game. It's not PG rated. Uh, Watch a good team and you wouldn't have to swear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On that note, uh, any, anything else here, Jim, before we say goodbye? Well, no, I think, uh, like everyone is doing and stressing, uh, I think guidelines, right from the get-go, the one thing I, I don't know, the one thing I think I hit more than anything was these guidelines will continue to change. What happens one week is not going to be the same as the previous week, and it might change the following week. But, um, and we know what's going on out there right now. There are some areas that are having protests. and so uh, Health is number one. I think we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. I think we can see how people and communities have worked together. And that should, that should really give, now there's not, everyone's ever going to agree with everything, but uh, 
I just think um, I think you've got to maintain the number one priority is the health of you and your family. So that's so many things are going on around us. That's the number one thing. And, and, and economic issues do enter into health also. But uh, let's take care of each other. Let's keep taking care of each other. And, and I think, uh, I, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there where we can think about things anyway. I agree that it's a somewhat moving target, or it will be in the next couple months, um, because things will change. And even though the mayor the other day, and I don't like to get into politics on this podcast, even though Mayor Garcetti the other day said, well, we don't expect any sports events with fans until 2021 at the earliest, things can change. And I wouldn't take anything that anyone says right now, unless it is written on a piece of paper in some sort of you know executive order or law that there are no events or nothing's allowed or people aren't allowed here or whatever, unless it's, it's codified in some way, um, things can change. And let's not forget that in terms of kind of being in this situation, we are, as, as strange as it is to say, only about a month and a half into it. Um, and this is a personal off-season for many of us. Some of us, that means no work. Um, others, it means working from home or finding different ways to, to live your daily life. Um, but taking the tack that it's a personal off-season, it means that at some point we're going to get ramped up and getting ready to go for the regular season, which will come again. Uh but we will have to wait and see exactly when. So on that note, I think we'll say goodbye. Thank you again to all those uh, on the front lines of this crisis. You mentioned all the health workers, Jim, who are doing an exemplary job and and sacrificing so that we don't have to. All the grocery store workers, all the delivery people, everybody who has to be out and about right now. Thank you. Uh, continued good health. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you next time. 